This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. From ABC News headquarters, here is correspondent Aaron Katursky. The governors of New York and California have now issued orders for non-essential workers to stay home. The governors have been watching with alarm as parts of Europe buckle under the strain of coronavirus and they're concerned about their own hospitals being overrun. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo called it the most drastic action the state could take, and it came after the number of confirmed cases exceeded 7,000. The streets are not quite desolate, but they are very quiet. Today, the federal government moved tax day to July 15th and waived standardized testing requirements for students, tens of millions of which are adjusting to learning from home. My own daughter insists I use air quotes when I say the, the word school. Hospitals across the country have been making urgent pleas for personal protective equipment. The mayor of New York City said hospitals are two to three weeks from running short. Nicole is an ER nurse at a hospital in New York City, and she agreed to join us provided we omit other identifying information. Uh, We're going to get to her in just a moment. Uh, But first, we are joined, as we've been throughout this crisis, by Dr. Angela Baldwin from Montefiore Medical Center, Dr. Vinaya Kumar from the Mayo Clinic to help answer some of your questions. And I wondered if we could begin, Dr. Kumar, with something we heard out of the White House Coronavirus Task Force today, a rather concerning trend that comes out of Italy, showing that the mortality rate among men is running twice as high uh, than women. What's that about? Yeah, that's a very good question, and it's also difficult to interpret that data, to be honest. Um, There are many, as of right now, we don't actually have any clear gender differences that can be physiologically caused. However, there are a bunch of social factors that we have to take into account. For example, if women have a tendency in Italy to be more of the uh, caregivers at home, then they would be the ones treating the sick people who are at home. So they may be more inclined to get infected. However, in men, you can also imagine that they are more likely to smoke and have other comorbidities that we already know are associated with worsening outcomes. I'm struck, Dr. Baldwin, by just how much we are learning every single day uh, as we test more, as more countries test more, and and there's, there's a lot more to go. Absolutely. There's so much that we don't know. As I've mentioned before, we've only been aware of this virus for the past three to four months. We're now finally starting to get in good epidemiologic data. So it's going to be a while before we can fully parse and tease this out and get a good look at what we're actually dealing with. Well, we know that uh, you have a lot of questions, so you guys will stick around to, to answer some of them. But I want to turn first to ABC's Alex Stone, who is coming to us from Los Angeles after the governor of California, Alex, essentially told all 40 million people who live in your state to stay home. Well, that's right. On top of what New York is doing, Aaron, California, really a, a nation state, as the governor puts it, the fifth largest economy in the world, 40 million residents told to, to remain in our homes, only able to go out for essential errands. It was first announced by the city and county of L.A. last night, and everybody said, wow, this is going into effect. Then the governor said, well, this is going to be statewide. This is L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti last night. This is not a request. This is an order. Only those who need to buy food, gas, medication, get money from the banks, if they have an essential job, will they be allowed to to go out of their home? Today is a day that will be seared into the story and the streets of this city. It will be a moment when everything changed. The mayor saying this is going to be like the younger generation's 9-11. They're going to remember this, everything shutting down. It is a sweeping order. 
essential workers like grocery store employees, delivery drivers, they're exempt. And Governor Gavin Newsom says that this has to happen right now. If we meet this moment, we can truly bend the curve. This is the numbers here in California like they are in New York and elsewhere, and they're rising. Newsom is calling this a critical moment. His teams are now, they're running the numbers if nothing was done. So this will change now based on what's going on. But if none of this was put in place, their projections within the, the California government, looking at eight weeks from now, that over half the population of California would be infected. That would be 25 million Californians. The governor saying that's what prompted what he's doing right now. Absolutely stunning. ABC's Alex Stone from his home post in Los Angeles. Alex, stick close. Uh, Dr. Vinaya Kumar, Dr. Angela Baldwin are here. When you hear what they did in California and what Governor Andrew Cuomo did today in New York, uh, they're basing it on lowering the curve. What is it going to work? Exactly. So these are measures taken to flatten the curve. We know that things like social distancing, if actually implemented, can stop the spread of the disease. So these are very important and very uh, worthwhile measures that they're implementing. And we keep hearing that they are being taken because hospitals are in danger of, of being overrun. Nicole is an ER nurse at a hospital in New York City. She agreed to join us, provided we omit other identifying information. Uh, Nicole, can you just give us a sense of what it's like in the hospital where you work? Currently, we're severely understaffed. People are getting sick. They're calling out. We're having to work with the staff that we have. Um, We have a shortage of personal protective equipment. We can barely get masks, which is a problem when you're providing care to patients who are critically ill. Um, So a lot of staff members, nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, we're basically putting our lives at stake every day. How are you making do? Um, Personally, I have been purchasing my own N95 mask. I'm having to provide my work identification to show that I'm a registered nurse and I'm paying for supplies at a premium. I have gone into work a number of times where you can't get a general surgical mask. Um, We have patients that are intubated on ventilators that if you have to do an invasive procedure, it requires an N95 mask and we're being told that there's none at all in stock. We know that we've heard from the mayor about an urgent plea for uh, for a restock, even going so far as to say the military should help uh, provide logistical support to get you all of the supplies that you need. He says that, that hospitals around the city are two to three weeks from, from running out, but it sounds like you're already out of certain things. In my department, in the emergency room, we I've gone in three shifts now, and we're being told there's no N95 mask in stock. Mm. So it it's concerning for staff members because we have families that we have to go home to. And if we go home sick, we now put our families at risk as well. But it also makes it difficult for us to just provide daily care. You know, we take an oath as healthcare providers to be on those front lines and to provide the best standard of care for each and every single person that comes in sick. But it makes it difficult for us to do our job if we're not provided with 
the appropriate equipment that's required. What is the ER like these days? Is it overrun simply with coronavirus patients, or, or how, how do you triage and divvy people up? Well, it changes moment to moment. We have now outside triage tents that are negative pressure, and we try as best as we can to triage non-COVID patients or patients that may have the possibility where we're ruling out COVID. So we're separating patients that are coming with just general sicknesses from COVID patients, and we're trying to put them in certain areas to keep them away from one another. Um, But our volume is still very high. In the media, you hear, call ahead, you let your doctor know what your symptoms are so we can advise how to advise you on how to follow up, if it's even necessary for you to come to the emergency room. But people aren't listening to the advice. We still have people coming in who they they have post-nasal drip, and they're like, we want to get tested. And... That's not the whole point of this right now. We're not looking for people to bog down the ER with headaches or a a urinary tract infection. Those are things that a primary care provider can pick up the phone and let you know, okay, we're going to call in a prescription for you or you can follow up in this way. The volume is still very high. People are coming in for complaints that could really be managed by a primary care provider versus coming into the ER. And unfortunately, the wait time in the ER is increased. So you're potentially going to be exposed to COVID-19 because we do have positive cases that are coming in. Just a stunning scene that you describe at the ER in the hospital here in New York City where Nicole works. Uh, Nicole, we're grateful to you that you're still going to work, and and thank you for joining us Uh, Doctors Kumar and Baldwin, who are here with us from our medical unit, I, I couldn't help notice. I mean, you're nodding along. You've these are stories that we're, we keep hearing out of emergency rooms all over the country. Absolutely, and this is the exact reason for why flattening of the curve is important. Because right now, it sounds like, especially certain hospitals like Nicole's, is that you're running out of very basic equipments in order to keep the staff safe you will quickly overrun the capacity of that hospital if you if this continues. And, and this idea of moving tents outside into the parking lot, we've heard of that in a number of hospitals. So what, you, you triage outside before, in theory, you bring things inside? Right, and that's part of the uh, social distancing almost as well in terms of those people who are suspected of having COVID-19 uh, symptoms can be kept outside and kept away from the other people who are waiting inside the urgent care or ER because they think they have a broken arm or something. There's no reason for those two populations to intermix. We have a number of questions from listeners that have come in through social media, so we can get to a few of those if that's all right. Um, we've noticed a growing number of businesses and individuals really worldwide have stopped using cash uh, in fear that physical currency handled by who knows how many people, uh, could be perhaps a vector for spreading the virus. Should we be using cash? There is no evidence to suggest that uh, we should not be. So there have been studies that show that the virus can live on the surface of cardboard for up to 24 hours, but 
No studies have been done on more porous surfaces or on paper. So there's no indication that we should not be using cash. And if you use that same ideology, we also have studies that show that it can survive on plastic for a number of hours today. So again, there's no indication that we should not be using those forms of uh, monetary transaction. What you should be doing, what you should have been doing all along, is washing your hands whenever you touch cash or credit cards or anything of that matter. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> washing your hands for at least 20 seconds. Um, uh, we are, a number of these questions have been asked before, but it bears repeating as people continue to process all the information. Can the virus stick to your clothing? So it can, but we just don't know how long it'll stay in the clothing itself. So that, that specific data point has not been studied. However, regular washing of clothing will destroy the virus. What about your hair or your beard? <laughs> Good questions. Uh, also not studied. However, keep in mind that... Um, when you, wear, when you have a beard, for example, and you're wearing a mask, we want to make sure that there's a good seal around the mask itself. So if you have a beard or facial hair, it does actually limit how well it seals around your face. Secondly, when you're coughing, sneezing, having a run your nose, those secretions do get on your beard and mustache. So always good to keep it clean. Mm. There are a number of questions from listeners about the, the virus itself. Can you get COVID-19 again if you already had it? It's an excellent question. So recent studies have shown that there are the po that there is possibly two different strains of the same coronavirus. So it is possible, although not likely, for you to get infected with one strain, recover, and then get infected with another strain. Now, studies from other viruses have shown us and, and let, made us uh, believe that you do develop antibodies to the virus, um, which would confer immunity, but we don't know how long that immunity lasts, whether it's transient or not. So the real answer is we just don't know. Mm. But, but that's also interesting in, in one of the theories in dealing with this has been let's get everybody somehow inoculated by having everybody get the virus. But I don't no. think that's a good idea. A <laughs> uh, question about uh, someone over 60 getting the virus and then recovering. Is there an issue of diminished lung capacity or function? Once you've already overcome the virus itself, we hope that your lung function returns back to your, its normal state. Um, however, we just don't have enough data to say whether or not there's any permanent scarring that occurs in the, in the damage itself. Hmm. When are people contagious? Before, during, or after symptoms are present? So uh, our thought process is that people are usually most symptomatic at the same time when their viral load is highest in their bodies. So that's when you're going to be really contagious. But we don't know for sure how long you are contagious. There's been some studies that show that viral shedding or the dropping of that virus particles can occur up to 18 days out. So the possibility is that, I should say the answer is that we just don't know for sure, but that's why we do suggest at least a 14-day quarantine. What's the real risk of my child becoming sick with COVID-19? They have the same risk as anyone else of getting the virus infection. However, with regard to the severity of illness, the kind that, that gets you in the ICU and maybe even kills you, they're at lower risk than the elderly population. Is that just because kids are more naturally resilient to things, or, or is there something in particular going on there? Unfortunately, not very clear at this point. Um, there are a few hypotheses out there saying that, oh, maybe their immune systems are better, better equipped to handle it, or secondly, that they just, for whatever reason, are not developing enough of a, of a reaction to the virus itself to cause that lung function to diminish. 
Uh, there are a lot more questions, and we hope you'll stick around to, to answer more of them as we continue to follow the developments out of uh, COVID-19. One of the, the big questions that we keep getting asked is the, the progress of a vaccine or a treatment or a cure. Uh, we're joined by Dr. David Bulware, a professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School. He's leading one of the major drug trials, and a short time ago he spoke to my colleague George Stephanopoulos. Dr. Bulwer, thank you for joining us. Tell us exactly which, which drug you're testing in this trial, why you think it might work. Yeah, so the medicine we're testing is called hydroxychloroquine, so it's related to chloroquine and uh, sort of another formulation of that. And, and so as it has activity in, in a laboratory setting in a, in a cell culture model that um, against the SARS virus and the, and the new novel coronavirus. And so it has activity in, in the lab setting and they've been, been using it a little bit for treatment. Uh, of of sick patients, and so we're looking at whether it can prevent uh, infection. Tell us a little bit about this study. You're trying to sign up 1,500 people who've already been exposed to the virus. So tell us how it will work. Yeah, so we're looking at people with high risk exposure, so healthcare workers who've been exposed to a known patient with coronavirus, or uh, household contacts, so someone in your household that's that's been diagnosed. So we're looking at high risk exposures and seeing if. We can treat people in the first three days after their exposure to prevent them going on from developing infection and disease. At, at his press conference yesterday, the president said this drug would be available almost uh, immediately. Is, is that real right now? Tell us exactly how far along you are and what difference you hope this can eventually make. Yeah, so I think President Trump is very excited about this as a uh, you know, potential game changer, but there still is a lot of work to be done. And it's very important to really determine, does the medicine work um, or is it just something that works in a test tube and in the laboratory setting, but doesn't actually work for patients? And so for prevention, um, that that we don't know if it works. And so the medicine may have side effects and toxicities. And so it's not something to rush out uh, and, and, and do, because as you mentioned, that it may take uh, medicine supply away from people who do need it. And so our goal is really to determine if it is effective to prevent infection and prevent hospitalizations and prevent um, more serious complications. What's the timeline here? So our goal is to enroll 1,500 uh, patients. We started on Tuesday. We've enrolled 10%. So we've enrolled uh, over 150 patients um, that have volunteered for the study. And our goal was really to enroll patients as rapidly as possible. And the, the follow-up time period is, is two weeks to see do people develop infection uh, and disease within two weeks. And so um, ideally, this is something that can be done over the, the span of the next several weeks uh, to completely uh, enroll the trial and, and have a, an answer in, in four to six weeks. It just depends on how quickly we can get uh, patients enrolled. We don't want everyone that's, that's ever you know heard about coronavirus. We do just want to limit the trial enrollment to high-risk uh, healthcare workers or um, household contacts. And just for more information, people can email uh, COVID19 at umn.edu and they can get instructions on how they might enroll in the trial. And, and Dr. Bower, you're talking about prevention, but what about treating people already infected who are already showing symptoms? Yeah, so one of our next steps is we do want to treat um, people that are not yet hospitalized. So I think once people are hospitalized, they're very sick, and there's a lot of different trials and treatments that people are trying. Uh, one of the things we're discussing with F uh, FDA as well as our own ethics board is whether we can expand the enrollment in our trial to uh, people who are early in the, infection, in, in the infection with just early uh, symptoms in the first few days, and whether if we give them the therapy, if that prevents them from uh, more severe complications or needing hospitalization. And so that's something hopefully we can expand um, our trial ne uh, next week. Dr. David Bulware, a professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School, is leading one of the major drug trials, uh, speaking with my colleagues on Good Morning America earlier.
ABC's Karen Travers joins us because this did come up at the White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing, and there seemed to be some disagreement, Karen, between the president and Dr. Anthony Fauci at the National Institutes of Health about the promise for at least one of these potential drugs. Well, and that's not the first time that we've seen the president uh, getting ahead of top public health officials or at least trying to put a more optimistic spin on this. The president was certainly very bullish on the potential for some of these drugs to treat COVID-19 and the timeline with which they could be doing it. Dr. Fauci uh, certainly put the brakes on this, throwing some cold water on what the president was saying, that, that right now we're still talking about anecdotal evidence. And the president was asked, you know, there's is there a magic drug for coronavirus? Uh, there is no magic drug. And he said, maybe or maybe not. Uh, that's not what we've been hearing from top public health officials who I think have been trying to cautious people, caution people, be optimistic. But these things take a significant amount of time. It is not an overnight fix. Uh, the, the, the bigger urgency may be for personal protective equipment for hospitals, as we've been hearing. And the president did address that today. Yeah, he did. And he's talking about uh, still trying to get everybody that needs it what they need and finally pulling the trigger, as he's been putting it on the Defense Production Act, where companies can be told you have to start making supplies. Uh, This is a Korean War era law that allows the president to do this in drastic measures and, and difficult times. He says they are going to do this. He wouldn't say what companies have been directed and what they're being directed to do. Stay tuned for that. Mm. Uh, And and Karen, there were a number of other measures that members of the administration announced that may or may not be particularly top of mind when it comes to to fighting the coronavirus? Well, we certainly were hearing about border closures, and they were talking about uh, illegal immigration and roundups there. I think the big thing, though, was coming at the top uh, when the president announced some of the education measures. We already knew that the administration was waiving interest on federal back loans for student borrowers. Today, they're saying if you have loans from a federal agency, you can ask to delay it for 60 days. Now, many people have privately held loans, but this is a very big move and certainly could give relief to many people out there who have student debt. The other thing I think that parents out there might want to hear is that the federal government is waiving standardized testing requirements for states uh, this coming year. Essentially, you can kind of take that as this school year is a wash, that you're not going to have school students at the end of the year or this summer if they were to go back then. Take the standardized test, which the federal government uses uh, for uh, many different things, including state funding. How's it going at home, Karen? We're hanging in there. <laughs> All right. Uh, ABC's Karen Travers, who covers the White House and who covers schooling for uh, for, for three kids at home uh, as parents adjust to all of these new realities. Uh, Doctors Kumar and Baldwin are here because we continue to get all of these questions uh, about kids and, and protecting them. And can they go for a walk? Can they go to the playground? Uh, what What's the best advice for dealing with kids? Well, It is going to be hard to keep kids cooped up inside all day, obviously. So I think it's fine for them to go outside for a walk under the parental supervision, keeping six feet away from anybody else. Playground is definitely a no. I think in a lot of places they've been shut down Um, anyways. But uh, there's no reason why they can't play ball outside, maybe in their backyard if if they have a backyard. Uh, uh, Suburban city dwelling differences (laughs) uh, with raising kids amid a coronavirus outbreak. Doctors Baldwin and Kumar, our thanks to you. The coronavirus uh, has changed the way all are living. And in New York, uh, the governor says, oh, exercise, preserve your mental and physical health, but it should be a solitary activity. For my colleagues, I'm Aaron Katursky, and you've been listening to an ABC News special. 
ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.